Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about entertainment and science on the Verge. Um, do I sound really tired to you, Liz? You don't. You sound uh, deceptively well-rested. Um, I'm, I'm putting on my radio voice, I think. Um, <laughs> I've been at Sundance Film Festival all week, um, and I am Emily Hoshida. I am the entertainment editor of the, editor of the Verge, and with me is... Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. Um, I've, I'm just kind of uh, amazed that I'm, I'm still trucking along this, <laughs> this week. It's been a long one. It takes a lot out of you to... Um, walk around in the cold in uh, high altitudes and then sit for long periods of time in movies. So, um, you know, pity me, please. My life is very hard. Um. I feel like I feel like this could be like a cue for like the Elton John. I'm still standing like. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the thing is, the thing that's hard is that you come back from something like Sundance and the world has kept turning. In fact, Sundance is a very, very small part of the world in many ways. Um, and there's so much to catch up on. Um, but tell me a little bit of what's going on in, in, in your corner of reality. Oh, yeah. Well, so I should say that we are actually recording a Bizarro podcast today and that I am on the East Coast and Emily is on the West Coast. <laughs> oh, yeah. That also should explain some of the tiredness because I'm all out of whack right now. <laughs> um, but so I, I am in Ohio right now. Um, and I, I, I was speaking at a college this week. Um, but uh, also the world has kept turning. And one of the things that has happened is that our, our old friends at Theranos, you remember Theranos, they're the blood testing oh, yeah. company. Um, they're the ones that haven't gotten FDA approval for their blood tests because um, there is a loophole that they've been selling things through. And then we then reported that they also hadn't been, none of their proprietary technology had been inspected um, <laughs> for almost two years. Well, so uh, the Centers for Medicaid, uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services have decided that Theranos' Newark, California facility poses, and I quote, immediate jeopardy to patient safety. So a letter was sent to the company on January 25th that says the lab has 10 days to provide acceptable evidence of correction. Now, this isn't the first time that they've run afoul of CMS. We actually have some of their previous lab reports, which... Mm-mm. We're not good. We had a couple of experts <laughs> telling us that they would not get their blood tested there. Um, oh. But but this is like the most serious report yet. Um, the the level assigned um, by CMS to the problems is uh, called condition level deficiencies. It's the most. It's among the most serious um, levels that CMS has. Huh. Um, they're just in violation of accepted professional standards, basically. Is there a Theranos counterpoint at this point? Like, is anybody like, well, hear them out, guys. Um, aside from, like, Silicon Valley people who don't necessarily... Who don't count. Know, too. <laughs> yeah, who don't necessarily... Well, you know, from a scientific standpoint, they don't necessarily count. No. Um, the thing is, if you don't publish your evidence and you don't get FDA approval... They have FDA approval for one test. It's their herpes test. But if you don't do those two things, as far as most scientists are concerned, your shit doesn't work. Right. Like, that's just that is that is the state of play right now. So they're not really getting defenders from the scientific community. It's all VCs and often ones who have money at stake, uh, either in Theranos or in companies like Theranos that are also using the lab developed test loophole. So their defenses strike me as being a little bit um, conflict of interesty. 
Is yeah. Way, is that a way of putting it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, conflicted, you could conflicted, say. Conflicted, yeah. Uh. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but it's also, it's people, again, who who uh, have the luxury of viewing science as, like, a, a thing that could have some gray areas, um, which it doesn't really, right? <laughs> I mean, there are gray areas when scientists do work and publish work that, that contradicts other scientists' work. And then right. scientists fight with each other for a while. And then after about a decade. And we all know you love all. that. Oh, it's my favorite. Um, but this isn't that. This is not. There's there's no publication whatsoever. The evidence doesn't exist. So. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from from that particular standpoint, they they're who knows what they're doing. Really? Man. Well, um, uh, there, there's been another there's been a dust up in, in my corner of the world as, as well, as Ooh. you know. The Oscars have been <laughs> kind of a hot mess, um, and I, I, you know, I don't use that term super, super frequently. But there's, there's kind of not that much else uh, you could say about them. Uh, and we've been covering a lot of it, and just like the general lack of diversity among the nominees. Um, That's and, a very and, and polite as, way of of saying that everybody's white. Yeah, uh, I, I'm. I'm trying to stay. I'm trying to stay civil here. Um, I mean. There have just been so many ridiculous. Um, it's it's actually been a really interesting rhetorical thing to watch. Um, people try to explain why it makes sense to have all white nominees. But the the thing that always kills me about this, and I see this a lot with like Verge commenters too. I mean, to be totally honest, is these people who are, and this is sort of the opposite, right, of the the Theranos thing. It's like people who just want to rely on data to say, oh, well, it makes sense from a statistical standpoint that all of the nominees should be white because that's what the movies look like. And it's like, well, the movies like that look like that because of another uh, very, very deep-seated problem, a lot of it having to do with the demographic makeup of the Academy, which has been a thing for a while now. And I think it just sort of reached a fever pitch this year because it was just so egregious. Can I so, can I ask you something? Um, yeah. So it seems like the Oscars at the very end of a process where at every single point there's a leaky pipeline for people of color, right? Like, right. There aren't a ton of roles to start off with, and then the roles that you get frequently, you know, aren't the main roles or aren't. Well, you know. the the pipeline starts even sooner than that. Really. Because the, there aren't roles because it's harder for a person of color in a creative position, like a screenwriter or a director, or even like a casting director. It's a harder for these people to get jobs in yeah. Hollywood just for, you know, basic, like low key racist reasons or yeah. sometimes high key race, racist reasons. Um so, I mean, it, it, it starts with who is allowed to tell the stories. And that's always what I talk about when I talk about our film coverage on The Verge is that's that's a huge part of what it's going to look like in the future is just the basic question of who's allowed to tell stories, mm -hmm. who's allowed to have these big movies that like influence culture to a very, very large degree. Um, so, yeah, if you don't have funding and, and, and a, a system in place that supports a diverse uh, a diverse array of like creative people and, and writers and filmmakers uh, then you're not going to have roles that uh, that reflect that diversity so it's it, it it starts way way back at the other end of the line and the thing that people want is they want the Oscars to recognize not 
a statistical reflection of what gets made, but reward the things that are doing good work, like, and kind of ignoring, <laughs> ignoring the statistical makeup of the movies because it's a, it's an award show. It doesn't need yeah. to be statistically reflective of True. what's out there. And a lot of the stuff that isn't, you know, the same old movies where Eddie Redmayne puts on, uh, I don't know, some, I don't know, pretends to be a historical figure. Like a lot of, a lot of those movies uh, are, are perfectly um, deserving. Right. And I'm not even saying they're fantastic movies, but they are at the same level as a lot of the movies that are getting rewarded. Well, so, but then there yeah. are like, you know, what, what I thought was the most telling was um, who got nominated for Creed. Because um, oh yeah, St- Sylvester Stallone got nominated, um, and Ryan Coogler did not get nominated for a directing award, and um, uh, Michael B. Jordan, who's the lead in Creed, didn't did get, not get he didn't get nominated either. Nominated. Yeah, and it's like one of those things where like okay, you know, you could admit that the movies are pretty white, but I feel like that's a like I feel like that was a remarkable movie. Um, yeah. And maybe more than just Sylvester Stallone should have been recognized. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it happens a lot, though. It, it happens a lot that you'll have a movie that's, like, got a largely diverse cast or, like, a cast of, of color. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the people who get nominated are the one white person who is has inserted themselves into the film. So it's like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an old problem. It, it even happens on the screenwriting side. It happened this year on the screenwriting side with Straight Outta Compton getting a nomination for its script, the only nomination the film got. And guess what? All of four of the screenwriters that are nominated for Straight Outta Compton are white. So, um, so tell me about the composition of the Academy's voters. Who are these people that are, that are making these choices? Man, I wanted to keep this segment short, but it's it's such a it's such an interesting subject. I think it's getting a lot of coverage right now, and I think people are like, oh, stop talking about the Oscars, they don't matter. But like this sort of clusterfuck is exactly what matters within yeah. the entertainment. Like this is like symptomatic of a lot of things that are wrong with the entertainment industry. So the rules of the Academy were that you could apply if you had some credits in a film. You don't you did not need to be nominated for anything necessarily. You just had to be a working professional in the film industry and it's a you elect to apply it's not like you just automatically get in if you make you know a certain number of films or whatever so um and they're lifetime memberships they were lifetime memberships so at this point you have a lot of people who like had were like in five movies you've never heard of from like the 70s who are still like holding on to their academy membership with like a death grip because like it gives their life meaning or makes them feel important. And, um, and they're voting and they are the people who are voting for stuff like crash to get a uh, best picture. You know, like these are not people who are even currently working in film. They're not a part of the film community um, in an active way. Well, that explains um, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, and, and this is like, I actually talked to somebody who works at the Academy while I was at Sundance. Um, and they were talking about how, you know, it's because it's an open application, um, but it's not really well publicized. Like, it's just a thing you can do. Like, I don't know, like get a gym membership or something. It's not, <laughs> nobody's making you do it. Um, that it's self-selecting. And a lot of people who should be applying to be in the Academy aren't because 
it's just not something that they figured they could do or that they would be accepted into um, just because of lack of, I guess, publicity about how to be in the academy. So you have a self-selecting group of people who are like, yes, I should be in the academy. I should be deciding who gets Oscars and what, what, what was the best picture of the year. And you have a lot of people who just like don't know that they could do, be doing that. So the guy I talked to at the academy was talking about doing a lot more outreach to filmmakers um, saying like, hey, you should apply for this. You should, you should be an academy member, a voting academy member, which is, I think, really interesting because there is that sort of thing where if you're not, if you are a minority, a lot of times you opt out of things just sort of subconsciously because you're like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I can't, I can't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, you've like internalized this in a way. And so I'm, I, you know, I, people still have to, still have to proactively decide they want to be in the academy. But um, the other half of it is that they are going to be removing the lifetime membership. And this mostly affects people who haven't worked in 10 years. And uh, what was the other one? You can keep your lifetime membership if you have been nominated for an Academy Award. You're just in for life. Mm -hmm. Um, But in general, you have to keep working every 10 years and like reapply every 10 years. So um, it's it's a huge change, and I, I, it's been met with a lot of a lot of outcry from the academy members, sure. especially the older ones. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure the people who really enjoyed being able to vote on the Oscars every year, who weren't doing much else and maybe hadn't made a film in quite some time, are are particularly upset about this. Yeah, and you know, it's not really a black or white issue, so to speak, either, because. You know, a lot of a lot. This means a lot of people who are, um, you know, women working in the industry. Um, it's not all, basically. This is not just kicking out white men, old white men. Um, th- there are a lot of people who are who have been, you know, voting and maybe aren't necessarily active in the film community anymore, but al- also are not a part of that establishment voice, who are getting, um, getting taken out of the academy and and are are not happy about that either so it's a really sweeping change and i think like you know there will be probably some losses on but i think overall it's a really it's it's just like such an emergency push you can tell that it's like just done from a place of like okay this has just gone too far just absolute terror almost yeah and it's been yeah so it's been a little messy but um as far as i can tell i think they're really trying to get like this new class in and situated so that they could be voting on the next Oscars. Like they're trying to move fast. So, um, so yeah, I mean, when people ask why, why it matters, it's, it's just, it's symbolic importance is really more than, more than anything else, why it matters. And it's just that reflection of what the industry values and that sends a message about what can get made and what is, what uh what can get made the next year and the year after that based on what we value right now so that's that's why we care (laughs) and i feel like i'll be explaining that a lot more (laughs) as we get closer to the oscars yeah i think that's right (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah uh there's been so much i'm still getting caught up on news you know yesterday i was on a plane most of the day when everything happened with Kanye and the Rihanna album dropped and the world basically exploded on Twitter. But um, 
but there's also something really free like quite frightening happening uh outside of celebrity twitter land tell um, me more no you tell me oh that frightening <laughs> thing gosh it's yeah. to keep track of them all so maybe you've heard of the zika virus um it's oh man okay so this is a little bit complicated um zika is actually not that new but um it, what what is new is that it is is beginning to spread in a way that is mm-hmm. uh, new. I guess that the new what's new is the spread. So Zika had been identified, gosh, like the 1960s or so. And, right. Um, it is not at, at, at first. You know, it looked like it wasn't so worrying, right? Like it, it caused like a rash and some flu like symptoms in some people. Uh-huh. But for most people, it was asymptomatic. Um, and it had been in, um, you know, uh, in, in, in Africa and a couple of other places. And then it came to South America. And Brazil actually has been having the biggest outbreak so far with more than a million people infected. But there are 20 other countries where it's been identified as well. Um, and the thing that's, that's scary about it is not the infection itself, right? Um, because, again, it was first discovered 1947, Uganda, hasn't bothered humans much. And then after this big Brazil outbreak, they noticed that there was an, a huge increase in the number of babies born with abnormally small heads and underdeveloped brains. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's, it's babies who are born with this condition, uh, microcephaly. Um, have a limited life expectancy and and typically poor brain function as well. Um, and it's not super clear what the link is. Um, but the CDC is now warning pregnant women um, and women who are thinking of becoming pregnant to stay out of uh, South America and the Caribbean. Um, Zika has, has reached Puerto Rico and may very well be spreading on the U.S. mainland this summer. Um, so it's 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 coming. Um, it's one of those things where it's, it's the spread of, um, mosquito borne illness. Um, it's passed to people by insects. Um, and, and some of the reason why it's more of a threat, like a lot of, uh, mosquito borne illnesses is because mosquitoes have a much wider range than they used to. Um, and, and so they, they have a wider range. And does that mean that they're reaching populations who just don't have, uh, I guess, like the immu- like immunity or resistance to mosquito-borne illnesses, or how ex- how well, is that happening? Most of us don't really have a lot of immunity or resistance to mosquito-borne illnesses, <laughs> but um, there the the so-called tiger mosquito um, is the one that's that's tra- that's thought to be the trans transmitting agent for this, and and West Nile and a bunch of other um, viruses. And before 1980, it wasn't in the Americas, North or South America at all. Yeah. And then between 1981 and 1990, it entered the U.S. and Brazil. And then between, you know, 1991 and 2000, it was in the U.S. and Mexico and looks like a lot of South American countries. And, and now it's it's just here. And uh, so that in and of itself is 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 helping this virus to spread. Um and there is some thought that global warming may have expanded the environments that these mosquitoes can thrive in. So to some extent, yeah. like this is, I mean, this is something that we've been warned about a lot with, with global warming is that there are going to be um, certain diseases that are going to thrive, that are going to spread more easily. And this may be one of them. 
Are there any fundamental misunderstandings about mosquito-borne illnesses like, like Zika? Like, is there misinformation out there? Like, I don't know. I feel like there's so many, like, global pandemic dramas or and or zombie zombie shows <laughs> that I feel like people enjoy uh people enjoy the thrill of it like watching it within the context of inform- entertainment but I feel like you know with with um Ebola it seemed like there was a lot of like misinformation and overblown stuff I haven't seen that yet um but of course like the Ebola outbreak was going on without a lot of inf- misinformation spreading right up until the point at which it arrived in the U.S., at which point everyone immediately freaked out. Um, Yeah, yeah. And the fact that Zika has been in the news, in the way that it has been in the news, I hope, has inoculated us against some of that kind of misinformation spread, because people have been discussing this now for a little little while. Um, But it's it's still, I don't know. I I, I suppose there is a possibility for panic. you know, between 2007 and 2014, about 14 returning U.S. travelers have tested positive for Zika. So it's been here. Um, so far, um, we haven't seen local transmission of Zika in the continental United States, uh, but there have been cases in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Um, and, and people who have uh, traveled from the U.S. to other places have come back testing positive for the virus. So it's it's around, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, but based on our sort of experiences with other mosquito-borne viruses, probably the outbreaks will be local and probably they'll be small just because um, the U.S. is a lot richer than many of the places where this virus is spreading. So we have yeah. window screens, for example, so that the mosquitoes don't get into our houses. And uh, right. because there have been efforts to eliminate um, mosquitoes people are trying to get rid of standing water like all of these things that 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 help a lot in terms of just the environmental impacts of having mosquitoes around also help control mosquito-borne outbreaks also i feel like mosquitoes don't really show up in uh in cities as much just i don't i don't know why scientifically that is although I will say I got bit more by mosquitoes in the summer in new york than i did in los angeles they're definitely in new york yeah, I mean, if but if you go out to, you know, the Midwest or something, I mean, you put me outdoors for five minutes and I will come back with 15 mosquito bites. I just get bitten up. Like it happened, you know, it, it, but then, you know, that my own personal experience leads me to believe that it would be harder for it to spread in a city or someplace, you know, and, and with a denser population, which might slow the spread. But I'm completely making stuff up, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I definitely got bitten a lot in New York. Uh, part of that was that I like to sit on my stoop. And so uh, the mosquitoes had access to me. Um, I, I have noticed a lot fewer mosquitoes in California, full stop. Um, yeah. So that's been nice. Um, but yeah, I, it, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe it's just that there's more concrete and places for the water to drain. And so there aren't all these places for mosquitoes to, to breed because they need standing water in order to lay eggs and breed. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a drought here. Um, <laughs> I say here because I am in California, so maybe that helps. Silver lining. No, no mosquito-borne illnesses. No water. <laughs> um, well, um, I, you know, I, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Sundance. We can lead it into our interview because, um, 
uh, I will be talking with some some artists from Sundance. Um, but you know, it was it was a, it was a week. It was uh, it, it was an interesting week. I think um, one of the biggest stories out of it was the um, like who was buying because that's always like the business aspect of Sundance is like who is buying and what are they buying and you know if you have been around long enough you kind of remember this era where Sundance is this place where you know people like the Weinstein brothers were buying movies for multiple millions of dollars and these indie filmmakers could come out of nowhere and like win the lottery basically at Sundance and I think that's sort of why from a traditional standpoint, people still cover Sundance is that sometimes these huge, crazy, exciting stories happen out of it. That hasn't really happened for a while. Like, like from an, a business aspect, Sundance has kind of been on the decline, and a lot of the films that do get bought out of it don't do that well. Um, so, like, last year, a, a new record was broken uh, for $12 million for a movie that ended up making, like, $6 million or something. So I feel like there was a general feeling like, nothing nothing really big was going to happen and instead you would have people like netflix and amazon coming in and buying these little movies for not a lot of money but d- getting a lot of them which feels very very reflective of the streaming age it's like there's not one big blockbuster that comes out of it there's a lot of little things so that was the narrative at sundance until uh i think monday sunday or monday no monday um when Birth of a Nation came out, um, which I have not seen, so I cannot speak too critically, but it received a huge, it, it got a standing ovation before its director, Nate Parker, even came out on stage. Like, there's a huge amount of excitement about it because it's a story of Nat Turner. Um, and it, it the, uh, Nate Parker, who's an actor, um, as well as being a, a filmmaker, he had, you know, not taken acting jobs for years while he was trying to get this made it was like 10 years or almost 10 years in the making just this huge story around it and it so it was met with this huge reception and then afterwards like a five minute standing ovation you know this is just sort of the stuff of Sundance lore and immediately a bidding war started and a new record was broken wow um, for 17.5 million dollars to Fox Searchlight um and this has not been without controversy on both sides because from what I hear, and again, I have not seen it, the film is technically very, very rough, like not very well made, a lot of people are saying. Um, but it comes in the middle, again, of this Oscars conversation about like what we're valuing out of places like Sundance and just the, lar- the industry at large and like having this film that's made by a Black director about a Black experience and like apparently very, very violent, a lot of slave owners getting brutally murdered or having their teeth pull out. Um, uh, I think it just, I think it felt very cathartic for the people who were into it, which was a lot of critics. So, um, so yeah, that was sort of the biggest story out of it. And the other big story, and I'm sorry to do an info dump on Sundance, but we didn't get to do a a podcast from there with the the crew that was out there because there was just so much to do. (laughs) Oh no. Um, seriously, like, um. But I mean, this this is what I was going to talk about next is part of that is that New Frontier, which is originally the sort of, I think it's 10 years old now, but it was supposed to be like experimental films, video installations, stuff that is film, but isn't like movies, basically. Um, so that's the part of the section that is now basically the VR section. 
um, as of two two years ago, I think is about when the the VR stuff really started coming in. And now there's a huge program, and there's two buildings or three buildings that um, that house New Frontier. Um, and you can just walk around and there's a bar because it takes so long to wait for any of these things. And you can try all these different experiences. And a lot of it feels like throwing the spaghetti against the wall. Hmm. Just like whatever works, like let's figure out how to, how to tell stories in, uh, in this space. But it feels like last year, last year, I think Casey Newton, Casey Newton at Sundance wrote something about how VR was eating, um, Sundance this year actually feels like it truly is because there's just a, such a huge volume of stuff and the Sundance Institute has a fellowship or um or no a residency for VR artists like they are really pushing this in a way that I'm not entirely sure what the expectation is but I think there are no expectations that's the point so so uh, here's my question is does VR feel like a free-for-all or does it just feel like there's like a bunch of money and people are like, great, I'm going to take the money and do whatever I want. Like, what's happening here? There is there is money out there and the people that I'm speaking to, um, one, one of whom is the creative director at Weaver, which is, a, I guess, essentially a production house for VR. Um, this is one of those things where it's like, you can come in with an idea and you can get money to make it, um, you know, if you go through these these different outlets. So there is, there's a lot of experimentation on, but that's something that's on the Gear VR. That's a smaller, more consumer-friendly thing. A lot of these experiences, though, are um, like on the Vive and on, the, or custom setups. Um, mm. And you, know, you really can only do them there. Hmm. Um, so I, I feel like there, there are two different schools of thought uh, coming out between those two markets and Addie Robertson has written a lot about that th this week and um, and you should definitely read her work because she has really interesting things to say about the huge amount of stuff I mean there's like there's there's an orgy uh, I'm sorry uh, VR there's an orgy VR experience <laughs> um, it's like I mean it's like an artsy orgy but it's like you're in a like surrounded by people doing it your own personal <laughs> eyes wide shut yeah I mean and and VR of course the porn VR thing is a whole other conversation but this is not that like this is like it's supposed to just be like ah oh, you're surrounded by people who are enjoying their bodies <laughs> um which is uh it's interesting I mean there's there, everybody's just trying to figure out what you would want to do if you could just be in another place essentially yeah right now um so yeah, I don't. Have you done? Have you done much VR before? Only a little, and only at CES. So right, I, most yeah. of what I've seen has been games. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to kind of delineate what's a game and what's um, and what's a narrative thing. There was something I really wanted to to try there, that um, it's called Defrost, and it's a mini series. Mm -hmm. uh, it has Bruce Davison and Carl Weathers in it, um, <laughs> uh, but it's a really great premise and it is just fully narrative um where you are a like a person in a coma basically or like you are, are oh god i can't remember i think it's like a cryogenic freezing but anyway the situation is that you are unable to communicate which is what you are anyway in a vr experience like 
and it's very it's very it feels very pc gamey it feels kind of like mist like people talking at you and pretending like they hear you making a response and then you know going about their narrative but that's actually a part of the story in this is that you're like stuck you are physically unable to move you're in a wheelchair and can't communicate you're and you're watching in. yeah and you're essentially watching like all this deception and stuff happen around you and you're like this silent witness to it and people are talking to you but they know that you can't talk back um and that's going to be a series i guess there's only like a five minute episode they were showing at sundance but um i'm interested to see uh how they how they work with that because that's you know narratively that stuff starts to get really interesting um i think cool but um so my conversation is with uh reggie watts and ben dickinson um and they are the the director slash star slash creator of waves which is a gear vr experience and i'm also talking with uh louise blackaller who is uh the creative director for weaver which is a, a VR production company, I guess you could say. For, um, and they, yeah, Waves is, uh, it's something that kind of is full, it's basically the experience of being inside Reggie Watts's brain. Um, and Reggie Watts is, uh, he's now currently the band or music uh, for James Corden's show, which I haven't seen, but um, but he's been a musician and just like a comedian musician experimental human being for years and so the experience is is super is super <laughs> unique um and so we're going to talk a little bit about that and just like the basic puzzle of of putting together a vr narrative experience cool I am sitting with the director, the creative director, and the star of Waves, a VR experience at the Sundance Film Festival, part of the New Frontiers lineup. Um, and I just got a chance to see it yesterday, but mostly I wanted to talk to you guys in general about what it's like to make a VR short, which nobody really has any definite answers about yet. Um, but uh, let me just introduce everybody one by one, so that because we've got a lot of people in the room. Um, I've got uh, Reggie Watts with me here. Hi. <laughs> and Ben Dickinson. Hello. And Luis, uh, how, how do you pronounce your last name? Black Aller. Black Aller. Hi. Okay. Hi. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, Luis or Ben, if you want to talk about how, um, how the project came about, both from a creative standpoint and how you ended up working with Weaver on it. Okay, I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, one mic, just a technical note, so it's yeah. being passed around. <laughs> Which is making this very cozy, and, 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 and I love that. Um, <laughs> at, at, so at, at Weaver, early, early on 2015, we, we took the mission of kind of like trying to find extremely creative people that were also visionaries that could embrace VR and help us kind of like push the medium forward. And by doing this, we connected with Ben and Reggie and uh, started talking to them and then developing a, an idea for like something that could become in the future waves. And, uh, and that's how we did it. Uh, basically, we told them if they could uh, do this for us. And they, we, we started talking and they, they got their head spinning. And, and uh, a couple of weeks later, they came up with all these like, crazy ideas for something that was completely out there and we loved it so we decided to figure out how to 
make it fit into VR. I just make it happen. And it's been almost a year-long journey, which has been amazing, at least for me, and in which we've learned a lot. We've really pushed the medium forward. We've done things that nobody has done before. And I think we found a very interesting intersection between what it is to be not fully immersed, yet completely immersed at the same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I... Uh I think uh, you actually mentioned to me when I talked to Ben at South by a year ago, um, when he was there with a phone called Creative Control, um, that you were start, you were going out to LA to start working on this. So uh, it's I don't know if it feels to me like a short amount of time for it to have all come together and for you to be at Sundance with this, or like a very long amount of time. But I mean, what how what was that like, like the last year and just like conceptualizing it and everything? It feels like both a short amount of time and a long amount of time. Um, mm -hmm. Well, we had already we already had the concept at that point when I when I talked to you at yeah. at South by, and um, yeah, once we got to LA, I, we shot it a couple weeks later, and um, the the actual production was pretty straightforward, similar to a film production, um, and it wasn't until we had the edit and started really dialing in the the VR, you know, the immersive aspect that it became apparent how complicated it is <laughs> yeah. and how many mistakes I had made and like how many, um, how many vestiges of cinema sort of blinded me and got in the way. Um, so it was a steep learning curve and m most of the burden of my failures fell on Luis's shoulders <laughs> and he rescued me. Um, and May I interrupt for a second? I would don't. I wouldn't consider that failures. I think that's. Uh, I, I just want to say that because, because working with with somebody like Ben is how we learn to make VR. Right? It's kind of mm -hmm. like uh, we know some stuff. He has an idea. We talk about it. Like even uh, we were all talking about how are we gonna make this happen, and and and, and it turned out that along the way many things didn't work and many things would have to be adjusted and by doing this by kind of like by kind of like grabbing our knowledge of cinema and pushing it forward into the vr space and learning what doesn't work versus what does work has helped us a lot as kind of like for putting together this so i wouldn't call i, I would call it like you did a pretty great job thank you <laughs> well i mean a lot of that has to come out of the original idea, like, you know, where you're coming at it from, because, you know, that informs how you're going to go about shooting it and, you know, the actual shape of it. And you guys, um, Reggie and Ben, came up with the idea together. Um, what about it? How did you tailor it for VR? Or like, how are you approaching that? You want to tell the story, Reggie? How we did it? Sure. How we got it done? And yeah. I'm kind of dancing around, like, the actual content of it, because yes, I'd rather yeah. hear Reggie explain it for himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, it was super easy. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of, like, imagining, like, oh, what, what kind of experience can you create with the what what is technically possible with these devices that we have? And having some experience with VR, was very excited about oh, okay good we get to make a we get to make something for this and i think because you know, i've been thinking about this medium for since probably like 1991 um and so i was very excited i was very like okay let's let's do this let's do this when uh we started talking when ben and i started talking about it it, it was pretty easy to come up with the concept really 
the difficulties came afterwards. It's making, actually filming it was very quick. And the idea was just a succession of realities that you fall into. And that was kind of it. So we, so the idea was to set the conditions for things to occur and, uh, and then, you know, consult technology, like how are we going to film it? And then we filmed it and then the rest of the problems came later, but at least we had the, the creative freedom to be, uh, natural and loose within it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that after I, after I saw it yesterday that was impressive to me is like, you know, the big problem that everybody talks about with narrative VR is how do you do a cut or how do you switch where you are? And this idea of either having these, like putting on a virtual reality helmet within a virtual reality experience is very meta, <laughs> but, but like that, that was actually a really convenient way to, to switch the scene. Um, was that kind of a part of, that, that was sort of seemed like a part of the point though. I think that was the first idea we had. Yeah. Yeah, we when went, we went out to lunch. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We 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 were basically thinking of uh, transitions. Yeah. You know, because as long as we knew what our transitions were, taking into consideration what the technology is, um, then we had the ability to be a lot more flexible. And plus, the fact that we're coming up with a pretty silly, imaginatively heavy piece that doesn't really follow any kind of. I, I would say we followed a, an energetic arc rather than a narrative arc. Yeah. I, I think it, I'm pretty sure it was, we were at lunch and we were recording our conversation and that's how we wrote the script. And Reggie had the idea is like, wait, what if you have to put on another virtual reality helmet once you're in the, once you're in the thing? And I thought that was so, I was like, that is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and then we laughed and then we were like, we're definitely doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely going to do that. Yeah. Um, I think we kind of built the piece of, that kind of unlocked it actually. It actually unlocked the whole piece because mm -hmm it made us realize that we could be really playful um, and that we could approach this unformed technology with a sense of humor and like a, just a, a sense of self-awareness and um, not, I, I think if we approach it with gravity, like we have to make it this amazing experience, it's like gonna change your life. That would have felt not very fun. Right. Um, and would have felt restrictive, so. Yeah. Just the idea of making, just uh, just that idea, just putting on a virtual reality helmet in a virtual reality. And and of course, that relates to the theme of the piece too, yeah. because we're always living in a virtual reality, even in reality, because we have so many uh, filters mm -hmm. on all the time and we like are filtering out so much information. Um, and so we all, we kind of are like putting on helmets, multiple, multiple, like nested helmets all the time. Yeah. And um well, this yeah. started as a music video project originally, right? Like that was the um, that was the original pitch. Um, can you talk a little bit how it? I mean, there's still a huge music video aspect in it, which is like one of the best ways I think you utilize the VR, just having this surround visual sound experience. Um, but how did that become just a straight performance into what it is now? And Lewis is raising his hand. Yeah. <laughs> teacher <laughs> <laughs> well, well you know uh, even before even before meeting this great gentleman here uh, we were we were already big fans of uh, yeah we were already big fans of Reggie and 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 how uh, how he kind of like shifts from like to through through genres and voices and all that kind of stuff so when we were actually talking about like developing this thing at the beginning uh, we did talk a lot about that. How can we make something that allows Reggie to express his full range as, f as, 
as fully as possible. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and I think that was kind of like seminal to coming up with something that could, could just allow you to sing and to lecture and to be a host and to be a god and all those things, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I think, and, and that worked out great. Uh, and uh, it makes for a wonderful piece in which really in just the 10 minutes it lasts. I don't know how many characters you played. We actually did something crazy at the end, which we didn't plan for before, which we decided that every single sound effect, and we should talk about sound because it is, sound is sure. more than half yeah, of VR huge. probably. Every single sound effect that we put in that piece, well, not all of them, but most of them, come from some variation or some distortion of Reggie's voice doing the effects himself. Oh, and wow. that was the most wonderful thing we did, I think, at some point with the sounds. It was just amazing. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that the, the aesthetic of it. I mean, you said you, were in, you had been interested in virtual reality, Reggie, since, you know, the early 90s and there is sort of a little bit of that vibe of it with like the the performance you kind of had this sort of grid look which is very much a throwback to original vr mm -hmm. um did you guys kind of envisual in visual in that's a new I word like i, that. Made. I like in visualize uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah uh did you kind of uh want to want to pursue that aesthetic from the beginning i mean I, I think it kind of was a graphical choice that kind of came probably from the collective idea and just uh, I'm sure especially like your fascination with VR for as long as you've been involved in it or just all of Weaver but I I think uh, yeah I mean there's obviously a nod to this idea of constructed reality and what does constructed reality look like do we see the seams of the computer generated uh, reality are we playing off of the themes of movies that we've been inspired from those types of things but also some of it is just like realities that you just kind of you you work with the graphical constraints and just like make that a part of the reality um does that answer the question i got lost a little bit <laughs> <laughs> we had a pretty robust previs uh book before we shot um and we sort of stuck to it i think it did kind of become more 90s uh <laughs> because of limitations huh. and and when we were when when Luis I mean Luis really is the really brought everything together and when we were starting to get the the special effects really dialed in I was like I was like Luis it's kind of there's something about it and Luis was like think about it like liquid television hmm. and when he said that I, I was like oh this actually isn't this is an aesthetic that yeah. we that we can own yeah. and that was a breakthrough moment for me because i was trying to get it to be a little slicker like a little bit more like a high-end commercial kind of stuff with yeah. like and and it just wasn't possible i mean we would have needed so much money and so much like we would have just needed a farm yeah um and and once once Luis kind of unlocked that and he said liquid television i was like i get it and then i thought the aesthetic kind of started to get dialed in and uh so I mean, it, there there was deliberate references to that period, and then the limits of the technology kind yeah. of also. And I mean, th that's what we stumbled on, I guess. And you're talking about kind of the the resolution and the uh, and the gear and that kind of thing, or, or, or as far as limitations, or just the, really, the rendering. The resolution and the gear, the rendering time, the mm -hmm. amount of like artists we could have, um, you know, just all all of it. Yeah. Uh, the resolution the resolution on the gear is a huge one. Resolutions of the cameras. Yeah. Even I mean the stuff in outer space is red, but the stuff okay. early on is a GoPro rig. So um, the stuff that's live action. Yeah. It's it's like the 360 GoPro rig. That yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. Okay. I didn't know if it was that or just a single 360 camera or what. 
Also, also the, 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 the second sequence where we get to enter the first virtually, virtually, truly virtual reality thing yeah. is with GoPros. And, uh, and yeah, we end up with a ton of footage that has many quirks and we decided to, we decided to embrace those as opposed to try to fix them with try to turn them into a language there's one of my favorite moments in the whole thing is when and and i think you've said that too reggie is like when 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 reggie comes out of the door through the through the through the tree and it's kind of like the tree is completely oh, right. stationary and the door shakes <laughs> and then he's like walking on a like on a on a on a board floor that is clearly sounding like a board floor blah 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 <laughs> like in a studio but you can see the grass and it's kind of so weird and and <laughs> and it just doesn't bother me it makes me feel like happy because it's so quirky and yeah. uh um what was the other thing uh i guess i forgot well, it's yeah. the exp I mean, this whole space is so experimental right now. I feel especially like, you know, there's sort of these two classes of VR and this is something that's much more accessible to an average person right now, anything that's on the gear. And so, you know, being able to kind of quickly put together something like this and really just like throw stuff against the wall, I think is what people are excited about with the medium right now. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I think the most important thing is a sense that we're that we're having fun. Yeah, I think that that's the thing that needs to translate, and like in everybody's respective roles in making this happen, like like graphically or you know, you get the sense that yeah, they're just having fun. So it's so it's concept forward, and it's performance forward, idea forward, and everything else kind of supports it. The world supports it, and we don't have to worry about being so OCD about every single detail because really, there's a junkiness to mm -hmm. it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's it's the it's that kind of slightly crappy, but it doesn't matter because we're all having a good time feeling. Yeah. I think that's that that's kind of what we went for. I think that's what we got. Yeah. No, I feel like a lot of people um, when they see their first VR thing, especially stuff that's more computer generated, you know, there is this thing of well, this doesn't look like a live action film, and this is like markedly lower res or just like not up to that level yet visually. But it's the ideas, and it's just like the construction of it that's that's uh, innovative, I guess. All, all the most compelling pieces I've seen otherwise, the other piece that I loved that's here is Notes on Blindness. Right, yeah. Which is, is just you're in a black void and it's just blue dots forming a landscape and a man describing what it's like to be blind. Wow. And the simplicity of it is what makes it excellent. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just very focused, very simple. I mean, it's different than what we did. It's not about, it's, it wasn't fun. It was more like a meditation. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and the pieces that I've seen that are trying to recreate reality or wow you, mm -hmm. honestly, it becomes, it becomes tedious. Mm -hmm. At this point, it's not immersive enough. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's, it's not immersive enough to really um, transport you in the way that some people are trying to do. So mm -hmm. the ones that are playful or the ones that are simple are the ones that work for me. Yeah. No, I mean, I saw this Oculus short last summer that I wasn't super crazy about, but there, you know, there's like these transitions and everything's black or there's like this introduction where it's in front of like, a, you're in a black void. And I was just so, ex like the most exciting part for me was just looking around the black void. <laughs> like, because that was, that actually felt super, like I'd never felt that before being in a, essentially just a black space that's sort of vaguely pixelated. Yeah. Which, yeah. No, it's know. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, it's an important point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost, it's almost like, uh, it's, <laughs> it's almost like, um, 
it's almost like the less that you have in comparison to the concepts, the the better it is. Like it should be minimalism for whatever. It's context-based minimalism. So it's it's if there is a complexity, like in our case, like the music video, we went the opposite. We like what I call we kitchen synced it. Mm-hmm. So so it's like way overloaded, but it's because it's it's meant to be very very ridiculous, and so we played the we played both spectrums, either simplicity or just overpowered unnecessary things and um but you know like when i saw that insect uh perspective lidar piece that uh the guys did that they have like this weird installation where you wear this strange ovoid helmet and it's got a um oculus rift inside of it but they they lidar scanned an entire forest and it's just uh, it's all like little pixels that uh-huh. form um so it looks like kind of like wafting in particles that are forming the idea of a forest oh, wow. and giving the perspective of different insects and there's something it's just very simple it's yeah. just like oh i can kind of see the forest but it's not literal so in a way it becomes more graphically rich because yeah. it's a simplistic idea so the idea is always striking the balance of simplicity and making sure that the concept is richer than the uh than the technicality yeah. and uh, and you know in in a, an ideal situation both meet perfectly Perfectly. But um, but I would always prefer the concept to be more forward if the technology isn't quite there. Totally. Well, I mean, it seems like you guys had fun with this. And it also, like, any when I've talked to you also before, it just seems like th- there's a lot that's experimental about this. And there's a lot, like, that feels like it's pointing towards a next time, like, what you're going to try out next time. Are you going to try another VR film or AR or anything like that? Well, this one's called Waves. So I bel- the, next, the next one will be called Particles. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah. It's a pretty good teaser. It'll it'll be kind of a continuation. I'm I'm getting kind of a strong Narnia vibe, you know, from it, um, where we kind of use similar mechanisms to fall into worlds. Cool. Yeah, and I think we'll just we'll be looking at reality from the standpoint of particles instead of instead of waves. Yeah. Just, yeah. just simple stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Pretty light. Um <laughs> and we also want to do we do want to do a Vive piece, so something that yeah. really has like a room scale perspective with 3d tracking and all that obviously that's a a, that'll take longer and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of nerds we're gonna have to get involved and my my only ambivalence about that is just the point of access for people like you know at this point it's just not accessible and that 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 is a bummer i want people to be able to experience it so i think one more yeah that's like that's like waves that people that people can watch on on cardboard if they need to and then maybe long term we'll be working on a Vive project. Or PlayStation 4. Or PlayStation 4. PlayStation, v- PlayStation VR. Probably or, the most accessible, high-powered system that will be available. Yeah. Um, or th- Apple Brain Chips. <laughs> <laughs> Coming summer 2018. Um, Luis, I, I just kind of wanted to ask you one thing before we go, because I know we're running out of time. But, um, I mean, in terms of you developing further projects, and especially in this space of the more accessible gear stuff, cardboard stuff, I mean, what... What are you looking for in the future? Like, what are things that you haven't gotten to work on yet that you'd love to see somebody try out? Um, I don't know. What's the most exciting area to explore for you? Well, I think uh, personally, I completely embrace the the space of the low fidelity uh, systems like cardboard or gear. Even 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 more so cardboard because it's kind of like anybody with any kind of cell phone that has enough power can just use it. And the gear is a little bit more difficult, right? You need to mm. get like a Samsung phone. And, you know, all of us Apple geeks that are out there, right. I don't know, I feel like funny about it. I'd like to be able to use my iPhone on those things. And in any case, I think both of these formats 
The fact that you have only orientation uh, to me opens a very big opportunity to explore the less completely and fully immersive aspect of presence in which you're in a space that you can explore, where you can look under the table and all those kinds of things, and more a space in which you're just there to look and to see, and there's an exploration that's inherent to looking around, but because you, you're not fully embodied there, you're kind of like half present, you're like a ghost in there, mm -hmm. there's a great opportunity for you to kind of like be grabbed by some hand of a creator and just taken across the whole spectrum of a story, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than just being in a place, which is a very powerful aspect of virtual reality, what is it to tell you a story in, in, in a way in which you have to, you have to, or you want to let go of that agency that allows you to do whatever you want and, and, and just kind of like fall in some in-between. And in that space, um, what I would like to explore the most, and we've been doing that a lot, um, you know, we do it every time we do it. It's kind of like, what are the elements of this language of storytelling that kind of makes sense? Yeah. Like the helmet construction that... Reggie and uh, Ben devised this perfect. Mm -hmm. Are there more things like that? Do they have to be that literal? Can we do some that are more conceptual or metaphorical? Like, what are the fates and cuts that are for VR as opposed to for cinema, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff, I want to find more of that. And I want to be able to use it more and more to craft stories that people will, will enjoy watching. And, and the, the idea of watching in VR to me is very interesting. Um, that's pretty much it, I guess. That's, that's yeah. super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> no, that Sorry. was great. Yeah. I was about to go along the interactivity aspect. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. No, there's, I mean, there's obviously so much. I mean, the explosion of everything here at Sundance. There's obviously, like, now it's easier to create this sort of thing and it's easier for people to see it. So it's going to be, I think it's going to get a lot more interesting and complicated before it gets settled. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's a very powerful aspect of it that I didn't mention that... I want to put in your guys' heads a little bit, which is we know exactly where people are looking at when they are looking. So we, we, can, we can have an artificial intelligence system that infers attention patterns and decides what to show you next based on how you are scanning the scene. And that's mm -hmm. a very powerful thing. We haven't done enough of that, barely nothing. That and sound. I'm going to go back to sound. Sound is just so powerful. Yeah. and. This is the first time with Waves where we, can, where we have actually tried to use it in a completely positional way so that it comes from all around you. Mm -hmm. Waves, yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> I've never not had a good time talking to you. Yeah. I'll there was that one time. The one time. Well, we won't talk about that. We'll, we'll take that off Never here. again. It's another podcast. <laughs> another podcast. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye. So that is our interview. And uh, again, I want to thank Reggie and Ben and Luis for, for talking with me. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and that's our show for the week. Uh, and next week, we're going to be back on... Uh, our correct coasts. It's so, the correct coast. So yeah. I will be on the West Coast and Emily will be on the East Coast. And there won't be any more of this bizarro world. <laughs> and we'll be able to talk about the Rihanna album, most importantly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that, actually. 
which I've just listened to halfway before we started this podcast. So thoughts forthcoming, America. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, please subscribe to us on on. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so tired. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, we are Verge ESP and leave us some feedback, some nice feedback. Feel and free to rate us. Give us some five yeah. star ratings. We're we're Give pretty us some top stars. Notch. Yeah, we're 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 out here, you know, in the trenches for you. So we'd appreciate it. Um, and you can also follow us on SoundCloud. We are Verge ESP on SoundCloud. And you can follow me on Twitter at Emily Yoshida and Liz at Miss Lapato Ms Lapato. Anything else? Any any other way people can reach us if they have any questions uh, about us? They are welcome to send me uh, messenger pigeons. Uh, okay, all right. To Oakland, just whisper whis- whisper your name into in, the wind. In... <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sounds great. So, uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Bye.